Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. My name is Richard Hill, and I'm here with <clears throat> our itinerant and very knowledgeable farmer from Massaro Farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Uh, he is the manager of that farm, Steve Mono. Thanks for being with us, Steve. Glad to be here with you. I think we're going to have a, an amazing show today. Uh, we have different guests and uh, this is, of course, the first show of the month, so we're going to have our beekeeper coming. Uh, Vincent Kay will be here in a, you know, 15 minutes or so. And then at 12.30, we're going to have uh, another guest, Laura Modlin, who is an environmental observer and activist. She, she was, a, uh, I guess, say an erstwhile journalist who wrote about environmental issues in the, uh, I guess, southeastern corner of the state. And uh, she'll be joining us about 12.30 to talk about some interesting things she's been following in her neck of the woods. But I think we're going to have a, a really, really great show today, you know, for a change. For a change. <laughs> for a change. I mean, it's, it's, it's good that we can finally get a good show mounted up here for the Organic Farm Stand. And this is the one. This is going to be the one, Steve. No doubt. This will be the best show of the year so far. So at least we can be confident in that. <laughs> That's true. And by the way, this is December 5th. And I just want to report to you and uh, get Steve's reaction to this, that on December, uh, I'm sorry, January, this is January 5th. And on December 5th, the sunrise was 7.01 a.m., and the sunset was 4.22, 4.22 p.m. That's how short the day was on December 5th. Well, today, the sunrise was at 7.17 a.m. Now, notice it a little bit later. That's kind of odd, isn't it? But the sunset will be at 4.36 p.m. So that means from December 5th to January 5th, we've gained, what is that, um, uh, 14 minutes of daylight. No, well, we haven't actually <laughs> come to think of it because the sun rise was later. But still, from my point of view, because I'm never up, at, I'm never up that early. 
I get a little bit more daylight. So I'm wondering what's that? What what is that slight change, which to me is sort of it's massive, you know, because I don't know why, but somehow the days seem brighter and longer to me already. How does it feel to you on the farm, and what does it mean for a farmer? Well, it, you know, it's always nice to sort of gain gain minutes, even if um, you know they're not noticeable right away. But I think I think lots of us are welcoming the return of the light. You know, uh, with the days waning throughout the fall, you know, all the way up to solstice, it, it's nice to sort of reach that that low point and then start start growing the light a bit. Um, so you know, we gain a couple of minutes every day, and um, you know, plants will respond to that for sure, and then people re- will respond to that. So. Um, you know, at this time of year, it really is a lot about rest and resetting for, for ourselves, you know, as, as people and, and farmers and gardeners and land care uh, providers, wherever you are, but also for the plants, too. But now, now the days get a little longer, we, we will see, you know, some, some plants respond to that. So for us, you know, growing in the, in the tunnels, we won't we won't see them you know respond to those initial first few minutes of, of extended daylight. But as this uh, as the month of January goes on and we get into February, you know, getting to uh, you know ten hours of daylight, twelve hours of daylight, it really does make a difference in how in how the plants grow and their sort of growth trajectory. So you know we've we've put things in the ground and planted in the soil in September and October and gotten them established. Uh, you know, sort of protecting them to, to hibernate for the winter uh, and through that real low point in daylight from, you know, mid-November uh, to, to mid-February, um, they are just kind of waiting uh, for, the, for these days to grow in length and, and, and lengthen. And while it's certainly helpful to have some of these warmer days for, for their response, it's really that extended daylight and day length that um, allows them to start start growing. So, for any of you, you know, who've planted things to overwinter in your garden or think about lots of folks planting garlic, you know, we want them to, to hibernate over the winter. We don't really want them to come out uh, too much during the, these uh, days of, of limited sunlight. Um, but as soon as those days get a bit longer, it's nice for them to, to start reaching out for the sun and, and uh, getting some nice early growth so that we can enjoy some, some, some fresh things and some fresh blossoms. And, you know, as I'm sure Vincent will note, all the, the first uh, – you know, forage for the bees out there. So, um, you know, it's still a restful time for us, but it, it's nice to see the, the days getting, you know, longer, even if it's just bit by bit right now. Mm. And what about the weather that we've had? I mean, I, I've always experienced, in, you know, in the past uh, 15, 20 years, that December is a pretty rough month. It There's always a deep freeze you know, in my memory, in December for a week, ten days, two possibly two weeks, we didn't get that this December. We got a couple of days of brutally cold weather, but that's about it. And now here we are in January, and the temperature, as I was driving down, was about forty-six degrees. It is. We've had extremely warm weather since the first of the year. What is this doing? In turn, you know, what what worries me is that when you know, fruit trees, fruit shrubs, or or lilac bushes begin to bud up due to the warmer. I mean, do they immediately? Do they just say, "Oh, it's warmer. We can start to do our thing"? Or are they like going, "There's something. There's something wacky here. We know we shouldn't start growing because there might be a freeze to come and kill us off." What's? How does that play out with um, the, this warm 
weather that we're having and possibly mm-hmm. will continue. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly a concern, you know, but not totally abnormal, particularly in, in southern Connecticut and along the coast where we'll have some of these warm spells. Uh, I, I would have liked to have had a, a longer, you know, deep, deep cold in, in December, um, you know, as much as, you know, I and others, I'm sure, enjoy being out when it's uh, 40 and 50 and 60 degrees. Uh, you know, the, the colder weather will help uh, things hibernate a little bit better. You know, it'll, it'll push away some of the pests. Um, you know, we've got bugs of all kinds that, um, you know, can have additional generations if, um, because their life cycle is so short if uh, conditions allow. So, you know, I talk about our high tunnels a lot. One, one of the crops that we grow, spinach and chard, um, you know, there's a pest called a leaf miner, which it looks like it sort of mines in the leaf. It, 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 it makes a little path, you know, eating its way through the cells of the, of the chard or the spinach or beet greens. Um, you know, because we've grown them in this protected space in, in the tunnels, we've allowed them to have extra generations of life. And when it's, you know, we don't get a deep freeze where we can, um, you know, kill them off or stop the, that sort of next um, laying and hatching cycle, you know, they'll, they'll interrupt our growing all winter. So, you know, I think there's lots of sort of insects and, and, and pests like that that might impact us that, um, you know, increase their population uh, without an extended cold period. So I'd, I'd like to see that happen again. You know, we're in a, a warm spell right now. Um, I, I would assume we're going to have some more cold spells, you know, in each of the winter months in January and February. And, uh, you know, when we get worried about it is if we have those, those deeper colds and frosts later in the season when, you know, as you mentioned, you know, maybe some of those trees have budded or bloomed, um, you know, at the moment with this warm spell we had, you know, 60 degrees the other day. Uh, you know, I don't think uh, the trees are going to start budding from this this one warm spell, but we certainly don't want it to continue or see, you know, multiples of these um, really extended warm spells uh, over the winter months because it can confuse things. It can get, you know, in your garden, the crocuses and the bulbs to, to, to come out, you know, maybe too early where they'll be um, threatened by a frost or, you know, the fruit trees and the berries and things uh, coming out. So, yeah. um, it's, it's worrisome. And, um, you know, that's, that's, we're going to see more of that, uh, with, with climate change, of course. Um, but we, we will see cold as well. So, you know, a, a, a stretch like this doesn't mean spring is coming hmm. earlier per se. There's still plenty of winter left to be had. Yeah. Well, no, I just was, I'm curious because I actually do, I do have one tree on my, uh, little lawn that, is starting to bud, and I was like, oh, well, this is very, uh, very premature, obviously. And, um, you know, so, and we have talked in the past about pruning the fruit shrubs, the bushes, blueberry, raspberry, currant bushes, that sort of thing. And, you know, when's the appropriate time to do it? And um, also, you know, I think Vincent mentioned uh, that there are some insects that sort of, I guess, overwinter or find, you know, harbor in some of those bushes, and you don't want to like disrupt them. It, it gets very complicated. You know, it gets very complicated. When should I prune my my shrubs, or should I just let them be? And 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 in the spring, when things get sorted out, you find out which are the uh, non-productive. Uh, branches and you and you snip those off after uh, you know after the the bushes really start leaf, leafing out. 
So that that question is still on the mm-hmm. table because I think it was uh, from the different answers I, that you both you and Vincent gave, it was difficult to to figure out when is the good time to do it. And of course, if there if those, I would think that if those tr- uh, shrubs begin to bud, form buds, then it might be too late to prune them. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, and it is. You know, there's um, a, a lot to consider when you're pruning. And, you know, different plants are going to respond to things differently. So, you know, if we're talking about fruit trees, for example, so if anyone's got, you know, um, their own little orchard or just a few fruit trees, you know, that they tend to, you know, winter pruning, you're typically planting, uh, you're typically pruning in the winter, you know, sort of planning for projected growth. You're sort of um, pruning some things out. It's sort of counterintuitive, but you're cutting some things away and sort of doing bigger cuts that will hopefully lead to bigger growth. So they're, they've stored up this energy, and then you make this cut now, and it can lead to um, some bigger growth um, when, in spring and summer. Whereas on those fruit trees, so if we're talking apple trees, you might prune in the summer, and, you know, that, that, that summer pruning is not going to spur a big growth. Um, so yeah. I, I sort of think, think about it like, um, like an irrigation system or pipes in your house going, you know, the, your tree is like a sort of pipe system and there's energy going to lots of different branches. And if you, you know, cut off a branch, you know, more energy is going to go to a different branch. And so that's where you get it sort of by removing mm-hmm. one sort of outlet for that energy, you can, you can send energy elsewhere. Um, so, you know, but we do have to consider, um, you know, insects and bees and, you know, all sorts of uh, native species and where they might be overwintering as well, you know, factoring that into our um, sort of pruning plan. But in terms of a lot of the fruiting things, um, I think, you know, for the most part with the, with the trees, you're sort of pruning. Uh, and likewise for, I think, blueberries, you know, you're pruning for uh, projected spring and, and summer growth. So this is the right time to do it. You want to do it when it's cold, uh, you know, and dry. Um, you don't want to prune before rain where it's going to get wet, uh, you know, on the spot that you cut mm. that will then, you know, maybe lead to some rot, you know, so whenever you cut, you know, you're, you're, you're wounding that, that, that tree or that shrub or that bush, and now it has a, a path um, to infection. So it's best to do it at a time where it, where it can heal. Uh, and if it gets wet, it makes it tough for that to heal. And that's where some rot can come in some mold and it might, you know, end up damaging that spot that you cut. Mm. Um so that's something I always think about, you know, cold and sunny uh, are good times to do it. And if I can get to it, you know, before um, the days really get longer in mid-March. Um, so, you know, that that's probably best or the end of March. So, you know, take those cold, sunny days um, and uh, and get out there. You know, it doesn't have to be freezing. Um, I probably wouldn't do it on these 60-degree days and 50-degree days because what happens on these warmer days, you know, even if it's not been raining, is we get a lot of the sort of uh, frost melted. The, the, the area is just wetter. You know, you've been, if you've been driving around, you've been seeing the fog on these warmer days. Even if you haven't gotten as much rain, there's just a lot of dampness on these, these warmer winter days. Um, so I want it to be to be dry and sunny and make my cuts, uh, you know, if I can in, in the morning or, you know, um, before it's too late so that they've got time to heal during the day. Mm. Okay. Well, that's great advice. So it really is any time from now until, as you said, the days really start to get longer in late February uh, is a good time to do this pruning. Yeah. You know, and particularly for something about thinking about these, these fruit trees and, and fruiting things that you're, 
you know, maybe wanting to increase growth. Now, if your goal isn't to for them to grow more, you know, sometimes a lot of things with, with trees, you got to remember, you know, you might not want to be on top of ladders trying to harvest your, your apples or your pears or your peaches or your plums. So, um, you know, you sometimes that's also about, you know, where you, you prune so that you're directing growth, you know, downward or outward as opposed to upward. Uh-huh. Um, so those are things to consider as well. Um, but, you know, if you don't need, um, you know, to, to sort of inspire growth, um, you know, pruning at this time might be minimal. Um, if you've already got something well established, it might be more about, uh, you know, creating sunlight and, and uh, space within your our trees and our, they all need um, access to sun and access to, you know, and, and air circulation, ventilation. So sometimes you're pruning to allow things to ventilate more, allowing more sun into the sort of center of the tree so that all the branches and all of these are going to get a lot of sunlight. You don't want to have too many outlets on, on some of these trees. So uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to, to cut stuff away. You think you're, you're losing potential, um, you know, fruit, but uh, it can be, it can be more beneficial to cut some of those things away and concentrate our energy and make sure there's plenty of room for, for light and ventilation to, to come through your, your tree or your shrub. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, Steve Munno, who was the manager of Massaro Farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut, I have a couple of questions. I'm going to turn you loose on them, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to get Vincent on the line to, uh, to, to give us the Honeybee Report, Vincent K., joins us the first show of each month, the first Thursday of each month. So the two questions I have for you, once again, returning to the issue of composting. Now, here we are in the cold months. You know, it's, it, some days it's freezing. And, you know, the, what do we do about our composting <clears throat> at this time? Should we just sort of curtail it and, you know, dump all our stuff in the garbage bale? Or should we still put it in, you know, the, our food scraps in the compost pile. That's number one. Number two, do you have any news on the CT NOFA winter conference that, oh, I, I don't even know if it's still a winter conference. It might be a spring conference at this point, but which is supposed to happen in March. Maybe you could give us an update on that. Uh, the last time I asked you, you said that the um, keynote speaker had not yet been chosen, or if so, it, you were sort of keeping it under wraps. <laughs> Perhaps there's a big pre- press conference coming. But in any case, maybe some news about that. And uh, anything else you want to tell us about uh, wintering on Masaro Farm? And I'll be back with you in a minute. Absolutely. Well, so, you know, one of the, the key things about this time of year is that um, it is a time for rest and for learning, too, and for, you know, research and, and planning and, uh, you know, all the conferences that are out there available over the winter to sort of, in, in, you know, improve our, our knowledge base and share in our skills are really key part of winter. Whether you're, a, you know, a grower of any type, uh, doing stuff at, at home, you know, um, doing things for sales, however it is you, you make your living, I think there's a lot for us to learn uh, over the winter months. And the Connecticut NOFA Winter Conference is a great way, I think, for, for all, all sorts of folks to um, build their skills and knowledge and share with others. So the, the conference is set for uh, March 11th in person at Wesleyan University in Middletown. And, and prior to that, in the week leading up, Monday through Friday, there will be virtual workshops online, uh, March 6th through the 10th. So we're still working on the, the schedule of things, but you can go to CT nofa.org that's ctnofa.org and um, 
there's some details about the conference. And, you know, if you're not able to travel on, on the 11th or you can't be there in person, there's still lots of workshops to be uh, engaged in throughout the week of March 6 to 10. Um, I don't have an announcement on a, a keynote at the moment, but there are a number of uh, workshops listed um, on the uh, on the website uh, about the winter conference. So, um, you know, we're going to be talking about um, organic disease management in plants. Uh, we've, we're going to be talking about the agricultural justice project, uh, fair labor practices, uh, and such on on farms. Um, we're going to be talking about resilient landscapes. We're going to be talking about medicinal herbs, food as medicine. Uh, you know, there's a lot out there um, that we're going to be getting into um, uh, at the conference. So. I uh, hope to see uh, many, many folks there, both in person uh, and uh, virtually, you know, in the little Zoom boxes throughout that week. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. That's excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to really try to get there this, this year. If not in person, then definitely by the Zoom uh, facilities that you might have set up. And um, all right. So we do have Vincent K with us. And uh, Vincent, thank you so much for joining us. We're here. We're here. Um, <laughs> helpers uh, working in the bee yard. We're in Madison, Connecticut. Uh, dogs are in the truck. I've got the cell phone propped up on the hood of the, the truck. It's nice and warm. <laughs> so we're, we're rocking and rolling here. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's amazing, uh, you know, to just uh, chime in on. I love to listen to Steve. He, he, you know, we have so much in common with, with um, the cycles of the year. It's uh, as far as a grower and a, and a beekeeper and it. They're so intricately connected, but it's um, it's amazing the climate change that has happened or is happening. Um, we were working in a different bee yard yesterday in Hamden, checking bees, and the bees, of course, are flying like mad. And uh, we look over in this swampy pond, which is behind the bees, and there's turtles, turtles sunning themselves out on, on a log. And I, and I just said, oh, my God. <laughs> and then I went over to one of the hives that was flying really hard, you know, bees coming and going. And I said, you know, let me just stand here for a second and see what's going on. And, of course, pollen's coming in on the bees' legs. So uh, wow. there are things that are blooming, um, things like witch hazel blooms in the winter. Um, and I was looking around in the field um, after I saw the pollen just to kind of try to identify something, uh, which I thought might be make sense. Um and I did find some dandelions and colt's foot, which is a dandelion-like uh, flower, um, low to the ground, yellow, um, and uh, has a, a kind of a milky, greenish-yellow pollen. So it's uh, it was interesting. But, um, yep, it's happening. And um, we have I, – I really hope we don't have it this year. But um, we have, in the last 15 or so years, had a very early season um, – and it's, it's not good for anyone. It's certainly not good for beekeepers. But I remember 15 years ago or so that um, there was a season where everything was blooming in early March, all the fruit trees. And, um, it, you know, of course, then we had, you know, heavy frost and freezes after that. Um, so things got damaged really severely. And, you know, some of the old-fashioned things to get back to some horticulture um, and, and pruning advice um, – one of the things that, that a lot of peach growers in the northeast, um, um, southern northeast, uh, if there's such a thing, um, used to do was paint the trunks of the peach trees white in order to reflect the heat. And so the tree wouldn't start growing or, or pushing sap until a little bit later in the season. 
So there's little old fashioned tricks like this, which, you know, in the com- big commercial corporate farms now, you don't see used that often because they're labor intensive. You've got to have helpers out there with paintbrushes painting the, you know, <laughs> the trunks of the trees. But it's, um, it, it, it may have a place. You know, some of these things may come back around. Um, and uh, certainly with bees, um, we're cleaning up the bee yards now of, you know, unfortunately, we always have some bees that die. And so some of those hives were, you know, we're trying to understand why. Um, and um, there's, there's, you know, probably a hundred different reasons why. But, um, you know, we don't usually have disease, uh, which we haven't found yet in a number of years. Um, but certainly mite, mites are a big issue. Um, and heavy swarming. Um, so we're, we're going to try this year to try to prevent swarming. Um, uh, in the beehives, because what happens when the hive swarms is it, you lose part of your bees and thus you lose, they say, part of your honey crop, which is true. But we, we've had enormous honey crops in the last five years and um, even with swarming. But what happens after the swarm is you end up with a, a virgin queen, which um, she goes out and, and remates and starts the whole process over again. And that's a risky business. And so we, we've been kind of documenting a certain percentage of hives that we know have swarmed, but the requeening uh, process that nature has undertaken is, is less than adequate for what we want as, as uh, beekeepers. So we're going to probably try to uh, maybe go in and requeen uh, with purchased queens from, uh, you know, a, a queen breeder. Um, that knows what they're doing and um, can provide us with, you know, uh, more than a sub subpar uh, a queen bee going into the fall. So there's little things like that that we're taking note of um, as we go through some of the dead outs, as we call them. Um, and uh, but it's interesting to see bees flying at this time of year. Um, it's good for us. It's it's always good that bees can fly. Um, they they do things like cleansing flights, which means they they've been cooped up and they're eating honey. Um, to keep warm. I mean, insects um, in general are cold-blooded, and, and so are honeybees, but as a unit, as a group, they react like a warm-blooded animal, which I always find kind of fascinating. And um, so they're clustered in there, but they're not asleep, um, like most insects, so they're eating honey. And, of course, they have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so they, <laughs> and the longer it goes, the worse it gets. So, you know, dysentery, dysentery can break out, which is a disease that Really? It's a horrible disease that beekeepers don't want to have to deal with. But, you know, on long cold spells, that does happen. Um, so these these cleansing flight um, periods with the warmer temperatures are great. It also allows the cluster to move inside the hive if they're getting close to being um, chewing up and finishing one section of honey in the comb. They can relocate, them, relocate themselves to another area. Uh, inside the hive where there's more honey stored so then they can get ready for the next cold snap so i mean you know we like the the warmth for different reasons and dislike it for other reasons so (laughs) it's never happy (laughs) interesting yeah constant contradiction there so what about this you know pretty warm winter that we are having so far i mean i i always see i was telling steve i i always really think mark december 1st is like the time when you got to watch out for some serious cold weather and this year that really didn't happen except for a couple of days so what how does that affect you know bees and beekeeping when basically so far we really haven't had any any real winter 
Well, I think um, Steve hit it on the head, um, the nail on the head when he's talked about the, the length of the day, the daylight. And that is probably more crucial a factor in onward development of both plant and probably animal and insect species. Um, uh, think about your chickens and how they shut down in the winter. It's just no time to lay an egg in the darkest period of the, of the year. And, you know, that darkness often coincides with uh, cold, at least here in the Northeast. So, I mean, as the days get longer, uh, birds will lay or get ready to lay eggs. Um, uh, certainly, if, if a, a bird is only having one clutch, you know, it'll wait till um, uh, later in the year to start building a nest and having laying eggs and, and getting ready to, to raise new birds. But you'll see them start to migrate as the days get longer, which is a trigger. Um, all of a sudden, you'll see, and, and often it's a sad thing because the birds get caught off guard and it gets cold again and they die. But you'll see robins get tricked sometimes migrating north into areas where, you know, they, they want to come back uh, and the warmth and the light, light, the days getting longer, kind of work together and it tricks them and they, and they start their journey north and then it gets really cold. And, and, you know, of course, that's a tragic thing, but that's part of nature as well. But um, here in the, the cold is an issue for the bees, but um, we've got these hives pretty well. Um, put together and insulated, and um, we feel that the wind is probably a bigger issue um, than the cold, at least for us, because what you, th- you think about wind chill factor. Again, these are not insects that are, um, in- you know, that are hibernating. They're not asleep. So just like an animal in the woods um, or a person who gets wet, you know, sledding or skiing, and then all of a sudden it gets windy, on top of being really cold, and it, it just, um, it's bone chilling, and it, um, it can really be fatal. So in some ways, that's another issue we, we, you know, we've tried in some ways to make sure the hives are um, facing south and um, not in cold drainage areas, but up a little bit where the frost doesn't settle, and um, so that the cold is, is, is one issue, but sometimes we've actually had to build wind blocks uh, in front of some of the hives. Um, the one place we were talking about yesterday that we visited um, where we saw the turtles is it's just a windy, windy area. The wind comes off of West Rock State Park and comes whistling down through the valley. And it's just horrible um, all winter long. And so, you know, at some point we're probably going to have to do something. We haven't done it yet, but we'll either put a, a, a row of hay bales across the front to block it or uh, perhaps do something with like um, a silt fence or something like that uh, to to try to break the wind up a little bit. And we're speaking with Vincent Kay. He is the proprietor of Swords into Plowshares Honey. Joins us each first Thursday of the month for our organic farm stand update. We really appreciate everything and all the time he, he gives us for this uh, for this uh, segment. Vincent uh, and Steve, any anything from Steve uh, you want to ask Vincent as we get ready for our next guest? Like, you know, for people beekeeping at home and wondering when to start, you know, you, you mentioned re up. I'm, I'm curious for those folks who are thinking of hmm. set up with, with hives, you know, they should probably be planning now. But when is that first bit of, you know, getting your hive set up and, and putting in a queen um, happen so that people can get themselves ready? Well, actually, it's funny you should mention that, Steve, because and I and I thank you for mentioning it because this year we will be selling bees to other beekeepers. 
um, one of the problems we have, again, as I mentioned, was swarming. And uh, to try to prevent swarming, you can cull out the population of bees um, and uh, thin them down a little bit. In other words, make them less populated um, because one of the triggers of swarming is uh, overcrowding. So we will probably have, um, they're called nucleus colonies, but we will probably be making up nucleus colonies by thinning out our hives, which are actually, we're inspecting them now, and we find some uh, hives that are, you know, very strong, and and, um, they're definitely candidates for swarming early. So hopefully before they go into the orchards for pollination, we'll have um, somehow uh, dealt with um, the swarming issue so that they don't swarm as much. Thus, we're making these nucleus colonies, and that they'll probably be ready for sale mid-May. Um, anytime the weather reaches, you know, a, a steady overnight of 60, 65 degrees and a, you know, a, a daytime temp of, you know, optimally, you know, 80, 85 degrees. Um, if you haven't moved to Hawaii, then uh, <laughs> you have to wait for that to happen. But um, if it, once that happens, you can requeen. And um, Connecticut doesn't have the best environment or weather pattern for raising queen bees. So we often buy them um, from other areas, sometimes California, sometimes Hawaii, sometimes from the southern states. Um, but there's a whole market um, in agriculture um, based on um, uh, keeping the queens new, young, fresh, laying lots of eggs uh, because more bees means more pollination for orchards and agriculture, but it also means more bees to gather up a honey crop. So if you can keep the queen in the hive, keep her from swarming, and keep a, a fairly young queen um, that's, uh, you know, going to be, you know, laying lots of eggs, then, then that's a good thing. Um, and you have to kind of be able to recognize that. Uh, it would be a long conversation to, to get into how to do that, but it's, um, it's something that, that people should, should be aware of doing. Well, thank you, Vincent. Once again, a great report, and uh, it's always great to get that little blast of fresh air from wherever you happen to be roaming out there in the hinterlands. And uh, I love the image of the turtles. I know there are many people who are yeah. going to be, oh, my God, I wish I was there to see those. Those. Uh, what, what kind of turtles were they, by the way? That's a good question. I think they're just painted water turtles, but there wasn't just one. There were five of them, <laughs> and it was just like, I mean, these, these turtles should be in the mud and, you know, <laughs> hibernating, but they're up on a, on a log, like, waving at us. It was just incredible. And um, I hope it's not a sign of, of, you know, again, an early spring because, you know, what happens is that it gets cold and wet and, and horrible later, and that's when the damage happens. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, let's hope those turtles hustle right back into the mud if, it, <laughs> if we get a cold snap. <laughs> so thank you, Vincent. Great Thank to, you, Richard. Great to talk to you. you. All right. Thank you, Steve. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. And now we are joined by Laura Modlin. Laura, are you with us? Hi, I'm here. Great. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, you are a new recruit to the Organic Farm Stand. We're very happy that you could join us today. Laura is a, an erstwhile environmental journalist and a current environmental activist, and she's coming to the show today to just to talk about a little bit about how she got involved in environmental issues. I think it's sort of uh, a, a, what's the word, um, a template for, for how many people are become aware of the environment and then become so entranced in 
and captivated by it that they, that they become, you know, they, they want to be act, do the things necessary to preserve it and to foster it. Laura, tell us um, what your, how you got involved in this and, and some of the journalism that you did as a, a freelance journalist in Connecticut. Thank you. Um, so I was born and raised in Manhattan, but my family um, always had a place in Connecticut. And so, but then I went to um, NYU for graduate school for film and video and spent about 10 years working in the industry in New York and Connecticut. When I left film, I taught myself web design and created sites for groups and businesses while I was looking for my next great passion. And then one day in 2007, when I when I had already left New York and was living in Easton, um, I called the Easton Courier's editor for permission to use some of their stories on a website I was building. We got to talking, and she asked me if I was a writer. Um, I said yes, although not journalism. She had just lost a freelancer and asked if I wanted to give it a try. So I did. And my first big story was in December 2007, about the 200th anniversary of North America's first recorded meteorite strike, the Western meteorite. It was named that because most of what the pieces that were found were on land known as Weston at the time. Um, but none of the fell within Weston's modern-day borders. The land is now known as Easton, and I was a correspondent for the newspaper. So I became captivated, really, with how people lived back in, in 1807. They had a connection to the natural world. They, they could read the land and water and sky in ways that most of us can't nowadays. It highlighted that something was missing in my connection to current-day Connecticut. The following summer, I was at Spring Hill Farm in Easton for a story I was writing. The farmer, Patty Pop woke up that dormant part of me with her description of the farming life. She was bringing old practices to new people, leading by example. Um, her husband, Al, was also a farmer, and he mentioned that a third of what they grow goes to the insects, a third to the animal, and a third to people. That told me that they weren't dousing their plants with chemicals, which would be unappealing to wildlife, and that was quite a concept. Um, they made they made a lot of sense in what they were doing, and I, and they kind of spurred something in me to start researching clean growing, because it, it made so much sense. And I just um, and I saw really how badly we had all become removed from our food. So I began seeking out food and farming stories to write. Around the same time, I met Bill Ducing, one of your friends, your old friend. Of course, um, such an important part of this show, but also, you know, one of the found, founding members of the organic movement in Connecticut, you know, Bill Ducing. Definitely, and he, he was one, I think he was one of the founders of CT NOFA, and um, he was just a great guy, and um, he be, he became a great resource for my stories. Um, he would I could call him anytime, and he would give me or email, and he would give me whatever information I needed, whether or not I quoted him in the story. And he he was just always available. And want, and you know one of the things I think that um, that makes him so great is that he wanted me to learn um, about natural growing. He he wanted. He, he wanted to share. He was very generous, and he played a large role in my introduction to organic and the idea that whatever you grow, you're growing soil. 
Um, and um, before I had been, I knew about the environment, I would hire the lawn care companies, and I say care in quotes, to tree my lawn for weeds and other evil things. Um, there's no way I could do that now. We need healthy soil, um, which Bill helped me really see, and not the hotbeds of chemicals. Pesticides don't just kill weeds, which we've bad enough. They kill other green plants that we need to survive. The pesticides attach to elements in the soil and prevent organisms from using living organisms. They're not good for soil and therefore not good for growing. One of the newspaper stories I wrote was about weeds as a friend of the soil. Bill was one of the people I interviewed. He was all for vindicating the weeds, and he um, had some strong words. He said that other cultures that know better um, would call them wildflowers, medicinal herbs, plants that help the ecosystem, and the good weeds can be used to crowd out the harmful ones. Um, he also had some choice words for pesticides and herbicides. He said that he blamed... Uh, he blames the chemical industry and their marketing to spread in, to spreading information that's harmful for the planet. He was the first person I interviewed who talked on the record opposing the chemical companies and embracing beneficial wildflowers, um, which was which really really struck me. And he inspired me. He, edu- he not only educated me about organic, but he taught me to not be afraid to speak the truth. Hmm. Um, he had a way of talking against harmful things without broadly offending people, <laughs> which is something I haven't quite mastered yet, <laughs> uh, myself. Mm-hmm. And he, he introduced me to the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson about the decline in the songbird population because of pesticide use. It came out in 1962, um, and, and as you probably know, it's considered Bill's generation's rallying cry for environmentalism. Um, in the years since then, though, um, chemical companies, they've been relentlessly continuing to promote their products. And still, we as a society haven't learned what Carson was trying to teach us. And I listen for the songbirds sometimes in the early mornings and don't hear them as often as I used to. A lot of people don't get it. I didn't get it for a long time. And um, they don't connect the dots. Um so um, what, I, what I'm coming to see, though, is that people do understand certain things when you remind them. Um, for instance, I co-founded a river conservation initiative in 2016 where it talked about the American eels, which live um, in Connecticut's rivers and streams after being born in the North Atlantic and um, coming here as babies. Well, so wait, let me, let me just clarify. Because uh, the, the the connection isn't as clear as it might be, you're talking about eels, right? These are little the uh, actually I've I've fished for eels actually in the Saugatuck River, and they're quite delicious when you uh, when you do uh, figure out how to uh, remove the skin. But yeah, so the the eel population uh, is uh, comes from the North Atlantic, and then continue the story the from there. Eels. Yeah. Yeah, and so they come from the North Atlantic, um, a region called the Sargasso Sea, um, and um, they come here as babies, and a lot of times they're hitching rides on other animals coming here, other creatures, and they and they um, live in our waterways and the surrounding land until they're adults, and then they make their way back to the Sargasso Sea, and they take with them what they drank and ate along the way, just 
in them. And so let's say you spray chemicals on your lawns. Chemicals get absorbed into the ground with the rain. And once they're underground, they can travel great distances and they seek out other water supplies such as deep wells and rivers. So anything you put on your lawn can end up in the water and food supply, but not just locally, globally, too, because all these critters that are roaming around our land that um, go out to the sound and in the Atlantic Ocean will end up all over the world because there's no dividing line, really. And um, so when I put this information on the website for the River Project, People were writing to say thank you for explaining it, that it seems really obvious now. They weren't generally ignorant people. They were just disconnected. Um, So um, what I've learned is that skipping the chemicals is a good first step since the soil is the most important part of growing. And um, I learned from Bill and as well as others that there are healthier ways to attempt a beautiful lawn. For instance, Yukon can test your soil for nutrients, pH level, and things like lead. Um, their website is for that is soiltest.yukon.edu. And they'll recommend how much limestone to use to optimize your, lo- your lawn's pH level, which is important. Mowing high is also a good strategy, about three inches above the ground. And this helps the roots grow longer, which discourages weeds and encourages plant growth. It also helps filter rainwater and helps prevent flooding that way. Um, And clover seed is good on your lawn. It adds nitrogen, which is important for healthy lawns. Um, But if you've already been using chemicals, um, you you can apply a layer of compost to regenerate its health. Um, So you could also look into installing native plants on your property and watch native pollinators. They will find you then um, because the native plants and native pollinators evolve together and they need each other. Um, Aztec Land Trust has native plant sales a couple of times a year. Um, You can also find native plants at Earth Tones Nursery in Woodbury. Um, Another helpful resource is Connecticut NOFA, CT NOFA, which is part of Bill's legacy. Um, they provide organic lawn care certification. Um, and just keep in mind that, you know, you plants um, take nutrients from the soil. And for things like leaves in the fall, instead of blowing them away, you could sin- consider mulching them and leaving them to help regenerate the soil. And also another good tip, I think, is to give it time that life isn't a sitcom where problems are solved in a half hour that healing nature takes time. Hmm. Laura Modlin, that's a fabulous report. I, we really appreciate that. Of course, I, I have, you do have some breaking news for us, though. Uh, speaking of rivers and the eels that may inhabit them, tell us about the, uh, the Mill River in Easton and, and the development there that uh, is good news for uh, environmentally inspired hikers, fishermen, fisher people, I should say, and others who want to enjoy some a little bit more natural space in Easton. So um, the Mill River, um, the, the, a, por- run, a portion of it runs through Easton. It starts in northern Easton in the aquifers and little streams and becomes a river and comes down. And, um, and then there's a section um, on a property on South Park Avenue, um, which is 29 points. 
six acres, the property, and the river flows through it, and it's a class one wild trout management area, uh, class one wild trout management area, and people have been trying to help preserve, trying to get that, that property preserved for 50 years, and finally, um, the town was able to get together and vote on um, a they, they first got together and voted to to charge the border selectmen with coming up with a preservation easement for um, part of the property. Part of it was sold to Aztec Land Trust, although they haven't gotten possession of it yet, ownership. But it's, this is all brand new. So um, the the final vote, which was a ballot vote to approve language of the easement that the selectmen drafted, was in December, just this past December. So it's very exciting. Because, and, and so many people have been involved in this. I was involved in it for a while. And um, so just so many people. It's not just a one person. There, it's amazing how... When there was development attempts for that property, the number of people who came out to oppose it. And and there you have it. It is great news because they'll be hiking there and um, fishing. And there's, like I said, it's in a bit of a transition now with the town. So the town has ownership of part of it uh, with the conservation easement. And Aspect Land Trust has ownership of the area around the river. Now talk talk a little bit about the fish population in that river and how it's pretty unique. It is because, um, and that's part of what um, drove you know inspired inspired me when I learned about it because I always thought, oh, it's just this little piece of you know property far in the corner of the Easton. But um, the trout there are native trout, um, which means they've been here since last ice age and. Um, and the, 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 it's a tailwater fishery. The water comes from the dam from the eastern reservoir, and it comes from deep down in it, so the water is cold. So it's actually cold enough for um, a habitat for the, for the brook trout, um, even in the middle of the summer, even on the hottest days, it's cold enough for them, and they need cold water. And it's one of only class, nine of these class one wild management areas and because of the fact that which means that they produce enough there naturally that the that the uh, the state doesn't need to farm fish to put there for the fishermen that's amazing so uh, i'm wondering maybe steve knows are there any other streams and rivers where fish are not brought in as you know farmed fish but actually generate right there in in that spot well, I'm sure I, I, I don't know specifically about, you know, farm fishing in the rivers, but it's very exciting to hear about these kind of um, successes with uh, establishing the green corridors and protecting rivers and streams are really vital parts of our ecosystems and, and, and uh, creating enough space so that these things can, can survive and thrive are really key. So it's really great to hear of this um, uh, coming together. Yeah, beautiful thing. And, you know, there's one spot that I, I'm, suspect might be a, a another example of that, which is, um, I can't remember the name of the reservoir, but it's in sort of on the Woodbridge-Bethany line, and it's, um, there's a, it's, I think it's called Sperry Falls, and it comes yes. off, comes down from a reservoir, and I've walked down from 
uh, Sperry Falls down further following the stream and river there and found other places to go swimming uh, that I'm where I'm not uh, within the purview of the uh, forest patrol who has uh, sometimes accosted me there. But um, yeah, and uh, that water down there, icy cold any time of the year, obviously now, but in the summer too. And um, quite deep. And I believe, I suspect that there's probably uh, natural fish uh, trout um, generation happening there. But uh, what a very exciting story uh, about the Easton thing. Can you give us a little bit of direction on how, you know, adventurers might find that spot? Sure. Um, The Aztec Land Trust will be putting in um, more of a parking area. Um, but right now, the, the best way to park is um, if you go to um, the corner, the intersection of Sport Hill Road and Buck Hill Road, um, there's, a, there's a small pull-off um, for cars, which is at the Randall's Preserve. Um, and I've also seen people just pulling over because, you know, there's, it's a rural area. So I've just seen people pulling over kind of more on the curb than the road. Because mm-hmm. it's all it's it's not paved there. So. And what what's the just basic direction on how to get there from let's say you know I don't know um, where do, where should we what should we use from Trumbull uh, or you know Route One in Trumbull or something like that? What, where would you how would you get there? Okay, I wasn't prepared to answer that because I don't <laughs> usually come that way. Um, but it's right it's right near the border of Trumbull. It's right it's just very close to the border of Trumbull. And um like I said, Buck Hill Road is a very well traveled road. So you could take Buck Hill Road to the um intersection there. Um but it's it's eighteen dash eighteen to twenty two South Park Avenue. So you could oh, find great. it on your GPS. Very good. One, one, give that one more time. Eighteen to twenty-two. So it's it's you know all those numbers. Eighteen dash twenty-two. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Eighteen dash twenty-two South Park Avenue. South Park Avenue. Very good. All right. Well, Laura, thank you so much. Wonderful report. Thank you. Please come back, and we'll uh, get more wonderful stuff from you. Thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it, and I've enjoyed it. Oh, great. Okay. And Steve, uh, once again, a great report from you. Always a pleasure. And uh, we'll talk to you both soon, Steve, next next, uh, show, (laughs) which will be a couple of weeks from now. And hopefully Chris will be here. My name is Richard Hill, and you have been listening to The Organic Farm Stand, WPKN. Cause she's so 